Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we're reviewing the new comedy from Judd Apatow and Amy Schumer, Trainwreck. Then in special features, we will have a conversation in contemporary cinematic comedy. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... So the big news this episode comes from across the pond where one of the most esteemed and established media organizations, the British Broadcasting Corporation, released their top 100 American films list. Now, the key word here is American films, so there's no Lawrence of Arabia or The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which I believe, Chris, you have a passing familiarity with. You know, I, I have a specific fondness for it. Maybe maybe we can get into it sometime later. Absolutely. Um, But for now, my question for you is, one, how legitimate do you take these lists in general, and how legitimate do you take this list specifically? You know, I, I really enjoy lists. I, I like, uh, you know, back in college, I actually, as a way of just like kind of sorting through figuring out what films I should watch. I went through the IMDb top 250, which is certainly not the most esteemed list. It's a, I, I guess you could say it's a very populist list. Although like, I really don't know how many people love Shawshank Redemption that much, but I almost think that it, if you're going to vote, you just feel obligated to it. If you're going to do guess, it on I guess IMDb. So it's already up there. So you might as well keep it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, it, nevertheless, it was really good for getting me to see stuff that I probably otherwise wouldn't. And, you know, there were some great classics in there as well as some stuff that like, I, yeah, was less than, less than happy with. And you're speaking of IMDb or BBC? Of of the IMDb list. Um, and so I, I have a bit of a fondness for, for going through lists. Um, so looking over this one, um, I don't know, you know, one of the big things is anytime you have a, like the, the compilation of the best of whatever, and particularly when it's a large number, even like you'll see those articles all the time. They're like the 50 best new movies on, uh, on Netflix, or maybe just the 50 best X, Y, Z genre movies on Netflix. And it's like, how do you, how do you even organize that? Like for, for like a end of the year, top 10 list, that's hard enough, I think. But for something like this, like to go through the entire catalog of American filmdom and to declare these are the best. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I like it, but I'm not going to like hold it up as like, oh, well, it it said Citizen Kane is number one. So, well, I and I kind of treat these in the same way as it's more top 100 films you should see. Yeah. But have the, if they don't rank it, I'm not going to look at it. Yeah, the ranking I, is what yeah, gets me yeah. gets me uh, fired up and wanting to it's, look at it. It's a conversation starter more than anything. It's not it's not like truth and fact it's well and then let's start the conversation the big thing that jumped out at me about this list and i think it jumped out at others was that gone with the wind which is frequently in the top 10 in other lists was only number 97 on this did that did that bother you do you, what do you think is the consequence of that i mean it's it's on the list like i said i mean it's uh and and that's where that's where i think it gets real goofy is like i i can't even imagine attempting to put together compile a top 100 list and then make that decision of like oh well if we put x here then shouldn't doesn't y have to be by necessity above it or below it and because of how it stands in pop culture or in you know the realm of right, you know, what's the your criteria yeah so uh, it's on the list that's that's what i'll say well and it also creates some very interesting cinematic arithmetic cuz with gone with the wind being at 97 does that mean that godfather is therefore at number 2 96 movies better than gone with the wind yeah exactly i mean like and and that means that godfather part 2 is somehow less than the godfather which it's it's not possible like godfather part 2 
is without question the better film of the two. I would certainly agree with that, but also I wouldn't say that even if you did think Godfather was better, that it's eight movies better. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And, and, you know, I think that could also be a thing where like, if, if you're putting them both way up there, like it would feel weird also though, if you were like, okay, well, Godfather part two is three and Godfather's two. You know, put well, them and side also by side any list that doesn't have Godfather Part Three on it is immediately illegitimate. <laughs> Wait, what? I've I've never heard of that one. Um, it's it's just this little indie movie that came okay. out twenty years ago. Okay. Um, the big shocker, I think it was three years ago, was the Sight and Sound Critics Poll, mm-hmm. and they, which honestly, if if you're going to talk about lists, I would give that one a little more um, reverence than most because a it's a the the way that they're polling they're polling critics and filmmakers well but they do separate lists right mm-hmm. but but still like looking at those and b it's what every 10 years is it 10 years yes or, okay. every 10 years um so it's it's sort of an organically evolving list mm-hmm. which sets you up for what well you're and going exactly into. and to speak of evolving the critics list had vertigo alfred hitchcock's vertigo at number 1 unseating citizen kane from its 50 year yeah. reign ever since the 60s since the beginning right of of sight and sound i believe that- so when Essentially, for as long as people have been doing best of lists, Citizen Kane has been number one. Vertigo was number three on this list. And then in the AFI, I think it's like seven, eight, something like that. Yeah. What do you think accounts for both Vertigo and The Searchers? Because The Searchers has made great strides in the past 10 years or so. What do you think accounts for those pictures becoming so esteemed? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I like both of those. I would say The Searchers, I understand a little more than Vertigo. Um, I, cause I think I like Vertigo, but I don't think it's necessarily Hitchcock's strongest film, even his strongest, you know, American film. Um, but I don't know. There, there are things about it that are super old fashioned as far as like you watch it and, and just the, the pace and the editing are a little slower in that, like, uh, in that way where you kind of show every little action and, and that sort of thing. But then it's also got the crazy, like compositing of, uh, you know, the, the, the vertigo scenes of the spinning in Jimmy Stewart's head and all of that. So there's a lot it's, of revolutionary filmmaking techniques yeah, and, going on and there. And I wonder, I wonder if that's part of it. Is it just like that stuff does still really hold up. And I wonder if that's, you know, getting farther and farther away and seeing how good it still is could, could be a part of, I mean, searchers is just like, it's quintessentially American Western. Well, yeah. And it's just like the, the scope of it, the, that technicolor, uh, John Wayne as a, an aging, you know, he's an older cowboy. It, it, it says like, I, I think there might be a little bit of sentimentality to its rise. Um, part of me thinks, you know, it's, it's sort of the seminal John Wayne, John Ford Western. And it, and it almost shows an evolution of, John Ford as a Western director. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, to that, I would I would add is that I think 20 years ago or so, when it started showing up on this list at all, it was just considered a great Western. Mm-hmm. Now it's considered just a, a great metaphor for the West, not yeah. just Western movies, yeah. but the West, the American West. And it's, as I said, the quintessential American it, Western. It seems like a lot of the Westerns that have stood the test of time have that they they have a little bit of you know it's not just a it, it's not just riding out on horses and shooting guns but there's metaphor to it or there's some sort of people always find another explanation beyond it i mean same thing you get that with with film noir a lot i think where they're saying oh well it's this gritty thing but then also below it you have either politics that it's talking about or you have, you know, these other these other things or metacinematic qualities. And I think what underlies that is just with both filmmakers and critics, 
is there's an increasing appreciation for genre, particularly, mm-hmm. like you said, meta cinematic genre. I have a question for you. Uh, did you look at this list and compare it to your war crimes list and, and see like what you hadn't seen on it? Um, actually, there were quite a few on there that I hadn't even considered seeing. Really? Which is interesting. Like, uh, yeah. Do you have any examples? Not off the top of my head. Okay. I, I was kind of amazed. I mean, it not it, it doesn't totally line up, but there's a whole lot of stuff on there that, that was on my list. I mean, very first thing that comes up for me as far as like in descending order, I guess. So number 14 is Nashville, which we talked about on the initial war crimes episode, followed by McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I guess I I have a bit of a Altman to catch up on. Um, but then. That's then directly followed by greed, which we also talked about. Um, there's, there's quite a few things. I, I, I have one on here that I want to point out just because it, it kind of surprises me that it's on here. I, but at the same time, it strikes me as more a, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. So there's that, but it, from its premise, it strikes me as, and what I know about it as more a Western that Europeans tend to really appreciate. And that's Johnny Guitar. Um, are you familiar with this film? I think I, I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, Jacob Jacob Graves, who's been on the show before, uh, loves Johnny Guitar. Like, will will he's an acolyte for it. Um, but uh, Francois Truffaut was also a huge fan of Johnny Guitar. I think we like one time checked out a VHS tape where there was like a Francois Truffaut intro on it or something, and then I didn't end up watching the whole thing. So it's still on my list of, I I'm going to add it to my war crimes list. Well, actually I think if you've at least watched a portion of it, that that would qualify as having seen it. (laughs) No, that's not, no, there's there. I mean, and to speak to that, there's actually things on here that I have seen like gray gardens. I've seen parts of, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, killer of sheep. I actually recorded on. TNC I didn't. I see. I saw that, and you mentioned it. I don't mm. even. Know. I've never even heard of that. It's definitely kind of in the American cinephile, uh, lo-fi independent sort of like that's that's where I always read about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's one of those like I just wasn't in the right mood at all to be watching it. Um, and I now now I'm kind of kicking myself because I I've seen it pop up like four or five times since since then. Um, since deleting it from DVR and think, oh man, I, I really need to go back and, and check that out. So much like Madeline, Judy stalked the subconscious of Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo, Killer of Sheep is stalking you. It, it, you could it say- is. It is. I, I, need to, I need to add it on my library list and pick it up next time. I, I don't have anything. All right. We could talk about this ad infinitum, but I think the one thing that absolutely does need to be mentioned is the semi-permanence that Citizen Kane takes at number one. With we could talk, I mean, we can and we should have an entire episode dedicated to Citizen Kane. But for right now, do you think that the that what accounts for this is just kind of a monkey see, monkey do attitude of oh well, it's always been there, it's always always needs to be there, or do you think it's it absolutely is the greatest film and no question about it? I think talking in uh, absolutes like that is sort what of, the Sith does. Sort of, right, right. I wasn't going to go there, but um, I you know I think it's a tough thing because the thing that I you know, I've spoken about this before. The thing that I love about cinema is it's all about how you receive the film and, and, and your personal, you know, you bring along your own personal baggage to viewing a film. And that's going to ultimately have a lot to do with what you like or dislike about, about a film. And so I, I think to say any movie is the absolute best is, is kind of ridiculous. Like unless, unless there'd been some weird, like, 
Uh, we ran out of celluloid back in 1950 and now we're, we could only do crude hand-drawn cartoons or so, you know, like, uh, if, if there had been a place where it was like, well, Citizen Kane was the last time we could make good movies and it was the best one that had been made up until that time. Ergo, that it be, is therefore the best. That, that would be one thing, but that's not the case. So, um, you know, it's, I, I do think there, it probably does bring a lot of that. Well, it's always been there. And then like, how do you argue against it? Really? If that, you know what I mean? Like, well, it's, yeah, I think you, there needs to be a definitive. Yeah. You can say this, this movie's better. And I think that's what vertigo was for a lot of critics mm-hmm. is not that it was bad by any stretch of the imagination, but or, it served maybe, as a good, or maybe vertigo was, I mean, and it's not like it came along that much later, but it's, it's a step forward as far as in progress. Okay. Instead of looking back to. Gosh, I can't think of when Citizen King came out. 1941. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, then, and then Vertigo is like, what, late 50s, like 57 or yeah, something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So they're, they've stepped up maybe a little bit and and maybe, you know, maybe in 20 years we'll have like a taxi driver or something. That, yeah. And to, and to that point, I guess these things inevitably take take a long time to determine. But I guess I would like to, there to be a little bit more liquidity in, as far as which is number one. Because as much as I love Citizen Kane, as much as I would argue that it is the best, mm-hmm. it's like I said, it's semi-permanence there. Uh, it's, it's become the Yankees. Well, it's it's one of those things that just makes it – you wind up appreciating Citizen Kane less. I don't know. I don't know if I feel that way. I do think people wind up uh, trying to look for reasons to hate it more because because it's so because, synonymous. Because that's how we are. Okay. I said no more talking about this list, but – you mentioned IMDb as your very first. Why would you say that a – and I'm not saying I disagree, but why would you say that a populist list is less legitimate than a critical or a filmmaker list? <laughs> given that we, the, given that you and I are indeed the angry internet film nerd that IMDb represents. Uh, I mean, I, I guess because it's not, it, it's not as if it is this like utopian – uh, society of, of film, uh, you know, it's, it's a very specific corner of the internet for very specific people who want to say terrible things on message boards about every, you know, writer, director, actor, movie with the exception and, of Shawshank Redemption and the Dark Knight, in which case but, they but absolutely then, but adore then you've, those. But then you've got the Shawshank Redemption and Dark Knight trolls who are just there to, you know, get people riled up. And so it's, it's populist, but it's not, you know, it's populist for that, that corner of the internet. And, you know, like I said, it, it forced me to see a lot of great things that like, I mean, more than anything, it was great because it prioritized like, okay, I'm going to go here, 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 here. You know, I, I had a roadmap and that's, you know, getting started in, in trying to, you know, figure out what's, what was going on, you know, in 70s cinema or what was going on in Italian new wave or, mm-hmm. or, or sorry, Italian neorealism, French new wave, all of those, like, it's a little daunting to figure out like, well, where do I start? So it was really helpful in that, uh, in that sense as well. Well, so I guess we can say once again, uh, thank you, internet. Yep. Thanks. Thanks, guys. So speaking of populist cinema, a little movie came out recently directed by Judd Apatow and written by Amy Schumer called Trainwreck. And Chris, I think uh, you and I are getting ready to review it. We we are. So stick around, folks, as we take on Trainwreck. Before you judge, you should know I'm doing fine. My friends are awesome. My apartment's sick. And I have a great job at a men's magazine. I liked you, Amy. You're clever, but you're not too brainy. You're pretty-ish and you're not gorgeous. You're approachable. Thank you. Yeah. I'm giving you an assignment. I need a profile on a sports doctor. Oh. 
so you're doing the article on me? Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. We watching Downton Abbey later? LeBron, I'm being interviewed. Listen, I'm watching it tonight because I'm not going to go to practice and all the guys are talking about it and I'm left out. Tall. You follow sports? Sports. I love them. Who's your favorite team? The Orlando Blooms. Do you want to get a drink? Yeah. Writer-director Judd Apatow has made his career telling stories of grown men in Arrested Development who are forced to come to terms with their adulthood. His films team to fuse raunchy, foul-mouthed humor with odd, sometimes jarring sentimentality. After four feature films, it's safe to say Apatow has a frequent formula. Dude plus dirty jokes plus sharp left turn on Field Street equals profit. However, over the past few years, I began to suspect this mortal who molded the modern man-child seemed to be expanding his horizons as a writer and executive producer on Lena Dunham's hit HBO show Girls. With that in mind, I was pretty excited when his new project, Trainwreck, was announced. It marks Apatow's first time directing a movie pinned by another writer, and his first feature film focused on a female lead. That seemed like it could be the perfect catalyst for forcing him out of his comfort zone. The screenplay comes from comedian and actress Amy Schumer, who also plays the titular Trainwreck, a foul-mouthed men's magazine writer with a boundless sexual appetite and a fear of commitment. When she begins dating the subject of her current assignment, a sports doctor played by Bill Hader, things seem awesome. But then they get complicated. Because rom-com. Trainwreck is packed to the brim with cameos and supporting roles by comedians, celebrities, athletes, and more. I mean, John Cena, Mike Birbiglia, LeBron James, Method Man, Matthew Broderick, Marv Albert. They all make appearances in this movie. Some as characters, some as themselves. So, Hunter, I'm curious. Do you think Schumer spices up Aptow's male-centric comedy shtick? And... What did you think of the crammed casting of Familiar Faces? We'll get to uh, the latter question later, how I felt about the crammed casting. However, the simple answer to your first question is no, I don't believe she spiced up his shtick. I kind of think that this is just what we've seen more of the same from Judd Apatow as well as comedy in general. Um, Anthony Lane, the New Yorker critic, said uh, regarding this film that for a movie called Trainwreck, it hewed remarkably close to the rails. And to that, I would add that the title is both ironic and appropriate. Ironic because for a train wreck, a movie called Trainwreck, it is very much a pleasant train ride that doesn't really go. It's just a straight path towards the end. And then it's appropriate because I think Trainwreck is less a title and more of a genre. Oh, mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. genre of comedy in which Jed Apatow is probably the patron saint yeah. of the train wreck comedy. It, and this it, movie it could describe basically the main character of pretty much all of his films. Well, and even beyond Jed Apatow's. So that's what, so train wreck it, it to, to your point, it's just, we've seen this comedy before. It's only with dudes as opposed to, uh, Amy Schumer. And the only thing that really distinguishes these movies from each other is how funny they are, the quality of the jokes. And to that point, it's just your usual blend of ribald humor, gross-out gags, and pop culture references. Yeah. I I would love to disagree with you on this. I, I really would. I I mean, I, I will say I think the comedy the comedy works a lot in in this. And and I found myself laughing quite a bit. But I was really amazed at how just I mean, it, it's exactly the Apatow formula that, that we've all grown to know and love or hate. And so it wasn't, I mean, it, it was very, I was very amazed at how predictable this was throughout, um, story wise. I mean, I think Judd Apatow is a guy who wears his, uh, three act structure on his sleeve in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's, he, he has that formula and it's, 
I, I know everyone does it essentially, but like his is just him, seems more you, egregious. You feel it. You absolutely feel it. I mean, that line that I had about the sharp left turn on Field Street, like that's that's really what he does every single time. Well, and we're throwing Judd Apatow into the bus quite a bit, but Amy Schumer wrote it. Amy Schumer starred the, and, in it. It's and, for and, all intents and purposes her movie. But that's that's what I would be interested to see. Is I would I would really be interested to see her initial screenplay versus what we got on the screen. Um, cause a few, probably a few months out, um, before they were really doing press for this, but, uh, you know, Schumer, Schumer was doing an interview and they talked a little bit about, um, how it was a little tough for her initially, like writing, writing this and then handing it off to Judd. But then she felt that in the end, um, you know, he taught her a lot of things, but I would be, I would be really interested to see if the things that he taught her were the Judd Apatow things. Well, and yeah, and to his credit, I'm as far as just a comedic filmmaker, a director whose name could go above the title, you know, there's, there's no arguing with his success rate. And so he's and, and taught you, her a lot, I'm sure. And you definitely know what you're getting going into a Judd Apatow film. And that that's sort of what I was hoping we would get a, a bit of a surprise out of him here. Well, and yeah, and to that point about it being fresh or surprising, it really wasn't. What bothers me about his movies and a lot of comedy, but his movies in particular is give Amy Schumer's jokes to Seth Rogen and give Seth Rogen's jokes to Amy Schumer and then give either of their jokes to Jonah Hill, whomever. Mm-hmm. And they, they all Pretty can make those. Exactly. They're yeah. all interchangeable. Oh, and I'll even expand beyond Judd Apatow. Give these jokes to Melissa McCarthy or Kristen Wiig and Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it's all the same character. And to me, great comedy comes from context and so if you have characters who who are all essentially the same and they're just making jokes that any of them can make, that's not context anymore. Mm-hmm. They're all just, oh, look at me. I'm a funny person comparing a bodily function to a TV show. It, it's a whole lot easier to get someone to relate to that, though, like to, you know, you can easily reach a broader audience by just – you know, vulgar dick jokes. And, and that's okay. So can we talk about just the, the formula I think of the we, comedy? Well, I kind of think we need to, because I'm getting ready to just bleed into our special features. So okay. we should probably focus more on this um, movie. So I, I think Judd Apatow has, you know, he also has a formula for the way that he does jokes. And it's typically like sort of a, a vulgar setup. And then everyone just riffs. Everyone in the room just riffs for a while. And I think that's something that, can work out really well. Um, and, and there are times in, you know, his, his previous films, like, uh, there are several times in knocked up where it's, it's very, you know, he's just sort of letting it run, but it, it works and that happens here, but there's also plenty of times where I like felt the need to edit that down to like, okay, maybe we didn't need, five jokes. Maybe we need two or three. Um, like for instance, the, the, what baby shower scene with Tim Meadows and, uh, like it's Mike Birbiglia's friends and Bill Hader. And they're basically just asking him like, Oh, so what, what sports stars have you worked on? They're just yelling mm-hmm. out names, but it's just the same, like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my, to get to what Alex Rodriguez and right. then, uh, Tim Meadows, you know, gives the vulgar punchline. Um, and then I think they button it with another, oh my gosh, like there's, there's not a lot there. It's not, it's not as if that joke is building upon something. It's just the same. Well, it's, it almost feels like it's wanting to, and we'll talk about this in a second, I'm sure, but it feels like it's padding the runtime of something that doesn't need its runtime padded. Yeah. What you just described, I would say that 
I will preface this by saying these were the funniest scenes in the movie, the consistently funniest scenes. But I would say every single LeBron James, Bill Hader scene Mm -hmm. could have been cut quite easily and just save it for the Blu-ray and do an extended edition because the movie is called Trainwreck. It's about Amy Schumer. She's on the poster. And yet you spend, I would say, 10 to 15 minutes on Bill Hader, LeBron James interludes Mm -hmm. that aren't progressing that central story. I mean, here's I, I will defend them. I. I, I agree. They are absolutely the funniest parts. Like I, I found them like, and I particularly, I think my favorite scene in the entire film is, I guess I'm, I'm stealing your thunder for the end of the, the end of the segment. But my, my favorite scene in the entire film is the scene where it's LeBron and Bill Hader doing one on one. And then it's just them with like exposition dialogue. And the thing that I liked about it is that actually felt like a, you know, that, that loose, um, improv sort of style that you get out of Apatow, but it, it, a real, like, you can kind of see, like, Hater is trying to act while also trying to legitimately score against LeBron. And I really, I really enjoyed that. And yeah, it did LeBron's, feel very organic. And LeBron's deadpan throughout this entire film is really, really great. I mean, I, I laughed so hard when he, he goes through like, I don't know, five lines of Gold Digger by Kanye West, just, just deadpan staring at him going through the whole, uh, right. drive off in a Hyundai. It, it worked for me. I'll, I'll defend it because I, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't bogging down the the film for me where some of those pieces do in other places well and what's funny about that is that again this had really nothing to do with the central story of amy schumer being a train wreck but since it was the most enjoyable you actually looked forward to those parts more than the central story well i i think what he was trying to do or schumer's trying to do there is show that like oh look bill Hader's character has some flaws too and LeBron James is the one who actually like brings him to realize like he, he's like, hey, man, you ever think about X, Y, Z? And and it kind of, um, you know, it, it, it's he's almost his conscience or something um, saying well, you're not perfect either. Well, and maybe this would be too much of a good thing. But whenever I saw those scenes, I was kind of thinking how brave and bold would it have been of Amy Schumer if maybe three fourths of the way through writing the script? She said, you know what, this whole train wreck thing, we've done this before. We've seen it before. Why don't we do a road comedy with LeBron James and Bill Hader going from Miami to Cleveland? I, I would have much rather seen that movie than the one we finally got. Maybe that's the inevitable sequel. I mean, I don't think you're going to get that out of Schumer, but uh, that that would have been that would have been interesting. That would have been great if like Apatow perhaps had said like, "Oh, we had so much fun doing this. Let's let's just put them together and in in some you know little antics driven." Uh, film. It could be the spinoff. I, I had never seen this, but the spinoff to Forgetting Sarah Marshall was Get Into the Creek, which I think was probably not a very successful movie. But that same idea is doing a spinoff with just LeBron yeah, yeah. and Bill Hader. Uh, what about so? I mean, I, I think do you do you really have anything to to talk about as far as like story or whatever? Do you want to just talk about um, characters and jokes? Well, because that's let's I mean, as far as story, let me think. Um, no, I think it's more just characters and jokes. That's okay. what distinguishes these. Pictures. I mean, it's, uh, because story wise, just real quick, you've it, seen this movie. Yeah, you, you've seen it. The I'm at times amazed at how broad some of the this the strokes are in this. Um, I I mean, honestly, like on the whole, I'm just I'm a little disappointed that bringing Aptown Schumer together, it seemed like a best case scenario where it's like Schumer Schumer's a a smart, pretty edgy uh, female comedian. And you've, you've got Apatow who is, you know, an edgy director in his own right, even though he gets those sentimental points at the end always. 
Um, and, and he's sort of been in a rut. You know, I thought it was going to be a fusion of uh, a great marriage that allows Schumer to kind of break into film and allows Apatow to get out of that rut. And, and it doesn't do that. Well, actually, arguably, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you on a critical level, but Rotten Tomatoes, it's gotten something in the mid 70s. So it's done very well with the critics. And also, yeah. it's one of his most successful box office. So maybe you and I are just a-holes and we don't get it maybe may i mean because it seems so obvious to us we're being being pedants about this whole thing yeah but okay let's let's get to jokes john cena john cena is great in this movie so good yeah um you could say that his time is now his well he like i mean maybe there is something to casting wrestlers as i mean because you know they're they're kind of they are sort of improv well yeah and, and you're right and so in many ways you could say that they're improvisational and theater trained, and yeah. then John Cena is probably one of the better ones. And there, there's something, you know, there's something to his timing and all. Like the okay, an, another long scene that I think actually does work really well is the scene in the theater with John Cena, which is actually my favorite. So I guess I have no reason to ask this question <laughs> at the end. We just <laughs> okay. got, yeah. Well, you you, you want to? Well, wanna go I, with it? no, I mean, yeah, uh, that, that was just again. It it, do, it doesn't really have anything to do with the train wreck per se, but it like does. you said, it does. That's that's okay, sort of well, the okay. first. That's sort of the first. I mean, if we're gonna. There's well, always, I mean, what he's saying. Okay, is, no, yeah. no, no, no. But it, it is the first like inkling of like maybe she has an alcohol problem, really, uh, at, at that point. And so that's like it's you've got great laughs that are wrapped that are wrapping around this like broken story of like oh see where this is going. Um, but just the the interchange between him and the other guy, basically, John Cena is whispering to Amy about bringing box wine to to the theater, and the guy behind him tells them to quiet down and then they get into a little a little argument and it just escalates from there well and you know i guess might as well spoil it and the way it escalates is that john cena physically threatens him with violence but all threatens are very homoerotic so yeah yeah. yeah. and you know it kind of starts with a scene that's in the trailer where the guy calls him mark Wahlberg. is that wine in the box Mm -hmm. is this guy ever going to shut up Mm, please watch the movie Oh. Stop, no, that's not right. Don't do this to me. Why is he yelling? Listen, you always do this to me. You you show up to these places, you put me in a situation. I'm a big guy. Everybody wants to fight the yeah, big guy. Yeah, you are. Hey, uh, Mark Wahlberg, shut your bitch up. Are Mark, you... Mark Wahlberg? Me? Who else looks like Mark Wahlberg? Your girl? Mark Wahlberg's like 150 pounds. I'm 250 lean. I look like Mark Wahlberg ate Mark Wahlberg. That, that's actually one of those – I complain about trailers all the time, particularly comedy trailers. That's one of those where it seemed like, oh, no, they gave away the, the punch. Like, that's the start of it. It keeps going, and it's like I, – I think it only gets better, yeah, with – like you were saying, it it somehow escalates into these unintentional homoerotic jokes with John Cena well, and, 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 and this to, other guy. Well, and to the whole idea about it being improv, um, from what I understand, LeBron James did a lot of his own improv, and I can only imagine John Cena probably contributed as well. Yeah. It's funny to think that – athletes slash you know performance athletes that they might be more skilled at improvisation than the actual comedians lebron lebron is more surprising i think than than john cena for sure and i mean he's he he plays it pretty safe you know he's just doing a, a straight deadpan he's not trying to get too much into a character per se um but yeah i i mean there are schumer schumer has great delivery in places and um overall i liked her performance i i think uh hater kind of outshines her uh when they're in their scenes together though like just his he makes faces or he does things that 
uh, really, I don't know. He does, he does his Bill Hader things. Now, and so when you say that, do you mean that you thought he was more funny than she was or just more charismatic? More charismatic, more committed to the, the goofiness that, that is there. Yeah. Because even though, uh, I didn't really particularly like this movie, and I'm not just saying this so we can get out of the Bill Hader friend zone, though that is part of the inspiration. But I would say I was very, very impressed with him in this, and I think it was a major step forward for him. Because to me, he, he for the first time, proved how he could be a leading man. Yeah, and if nothing else, I would love to see – I'd love to see Hader, you know, kind of get – maybe this could be his vehicle for – uh, going on to become a leading comedic man, and and honestly Schumer as well. I mean, I would still like to see Schumer in uh, other comedies, maybe just not not with not teamed up with Apatow, and perhaps not pinned by herself either. Well, I maybe mean, trying to do her own thing. Yeah, I, I, and that's I mean, ultimately that's the thing that I find so odd is this doesn't feel like an Amy Schumer movie. Like if if you told me. That it was just Judd Apatow wrote it and they cast Amy Schumer, I would believe it because it doesn't have her her sharpness, her uh, – I mean there, the crudeness is there, but that's you know not, well, and it's not necessarily a patent uh, uh, style. You know. Well, and there's not really any insight into the quirks of human nature and behavior, which we, I've seen – I'm not a, a big watcher of her show, but I've seen from the little bit I've seen of uh-huh. her show. She does seem to have a lot of insight, which is the mark of a great comedian. Yeah. Yeah, and and you really don't get you don't get a lot of that here. You get you get the you know underlying story of oh she's an alcoholic and needs to clean up, but that's you know you don't get much of it. And then whenever she finally does decide to clean up, it's just like oh here's a montage. Okay, <laughs> here's a montage. Whenever I watched it in the theater, I counted about four or five. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but you- I mean that's like that's her. That's her, oh, I'm going to sell my toys on eBay or her, what, you know, the Aptow always has the, like, the turning point where it's like, oh, no, I, I do need to actually care about this woman and the, the baby that we're making, right. you know, clean up the act. That's, and, and it felt like it was the least, like, the least attention paid to this one of any of them that I've, I guess I haven't seen all of this is 40 because I, I don't know. I've cut is it on just H- one giant montage? Well, I cut it on HBO a few times and I just, it was too, ugh. It, I, I couldn't get through it. It, Wait, it wasn't, it wasn't my thing. It was, it was kind of depressing and kind of, uh, I don't, kind of crude, like, like mean crude, not just like your typical, but like, uh, it, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. As a, as a married person myself, it made me feel very uncomfortable and very like, it, it wasn't relatable, which is what I was hoping out of it. But I'm also not a 40 year old. Yeah. Well, with children. Just you wait, sir. Yeah, <laughs> just you wait. Maybe. Um, but to the point about this being typical Apatow, as I was halfway thinking they should have just promoted this as from the creator of the 40 year old virgin comes the 30 year old tart. Yeah. And to that point, her for her being a train wreck, she wasn't really that big of a train wreck to me. No, I mean, she was I mean, kind of promiscuous and she drank a lot, but she didn't. They missed a lot of opportunities to make her a genuine shit show. Well, I they felt. they they gave her characteristics that were like you know it, it it it's more just telling you she's an alcoholic. She she's you know likes to likes to freely sleep around and the, but it doesn't it doesn't do a whole lot with that. It, like it's. Not it defines her as like a oh that's what she is, but it doesn't define her as a character and the actions that she really takes. You know that that sort of yeah. So she um, wasn't really a train wreck. It I wasn't. Thought. I I would have rather you you do something like. Have you seen any of Girls, the HBO show? A little bit, yeah. Okay, I would rather do something kind of like like a 
Hannah Horbath in, in girls who there are times when uh, there are a lot of times when I straight up don't like that character. I mean, she has a lot of traits that are difficult to overcome as far as like with her being the, the main, uh, and, and granted it's an ensemble, but she's still the main, you know, mm-hmm. the main character of the show. Um, and I, I find that really, I guess endearing might be the wrong word, but that's what I'm going to go with, you know, for, for Lena Dunham to put herself in that position and say, like, let's, let's look at it warts and all. And, and it's a character, you know, it's not exactly her, but I'm sure there are probably character traits in there that are, you know, heightened or whatever. Um, I, I don't know. I was, I was hoping for something more like that, where it's, it, it, that at least feels that character has a lot of confusing baggage that she's bringing along. And, it, and it's really actually trying to look at it, analyze it. I know it's not everyone's girls isn't everyone's cup of tea, but uh, I think it does that very well. Well, and what she just described isn't just endearing for the comedian or from the character perspective. It's also good comedy. And mm-hmm. so I thought there were a lot of missed opportunities in this picture to create comedy and also create character. The most, uh, uh, obvious to me, was whenever he was receiving his award from Doctors Without Borders and mm-hmm. she just got the phone call and so she went and answered her phone and apparently that was supposed to be this big breaking point in their relationship. Why not have her get drunk or or be out of her element or hit on an well, ambassador and, or something? And that whole that whole storyline of like, oh, you, you got to answer, I'm going to fire you. Like it came out of left field. It came out of nowhere. It wasn't prompted. It wasn't set up. It wasn't – it didn't feel like something where it was like, oh, yeah, she really – like I, I never felt like – it was it was a place where it's like, oh man, she's she's got a really tough decision right now. Well, and also that's something that a very very responsible career woman or career man would do is, and we've seen that cliche over and over again of, oh, you have to choose between whether you're a guy or a girl, you have to choose between your loved ones and your career. Mm-hmm. And we've been led to believe up until this point that she's a train wreck, but a train wreck would just tell their boss to go screw themselves, or they would wouldn't answer the phone or any number of things. Yeah. So she did and, something and would, that, and, and would probably have the ability to weasel weasel herself out of getting fired. Yeah. So for it was not answering. it was an it was a moment that was antithetical to the character, but also not a particularly funny. So I thought that was a big well, mistake. Not particularly helpful to the story. Either. Yeah, again, she's a train wreck. Um, so speaking of boss, this is going to be kind of a uh, kind of a random segue. But I saw you wrote down in your notes, and I know we're going to regret if we don't mention it. Tilda Swinton. Did you recognize that as Tilda Swinton? I did not. Nor I did was, I. I it, like the credits were rolling, and I was, and it, it. I don't remember if it said who she was or it just like they said Tilda Swinton, and I like racked through my Rolodex and like. Holy crap that like, and she, she pulled it off very well. I um, thought so too. I, I didn't, I didn't just like, I don't know. I, and, and then in hindsight, it was like, oh, that was a nice little, uh, bring her and Ezra Miller back together from, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, you know, a little bit, a little bit lighter. Fare and I'm than- sure that's exactly what they were trying to go for <laughs> yeah. there. Um, I thought it was funny that she was more recognizable in the Grand Budapest Hotel than she <laughs> yeah. was in this, even though in this, she looked, uh, and, the, and this was, of course, the joke is uh, Tilda Swinton is a very fair-skinned uh, British woman, mm-hmm. but in this, she looks like she's been out in the sun entirely too long. Well, she was she was just nondescript, like, middle-aged, She kind of looks like, like a like a handbag made out of alligator or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So and that, I, I hate I hate to describe Tilda Swinton that way because I, I really love her, but, well, she, but she that pulls, was the joke, she though. Pulls, yeah. yeah, she pulls that character off very well, even if she's not given a whole lot to do. I mean, but there's there's so many people in this that um, there's, you know, that that's fine. Real quick, I, I have just one more thing. You know, we've been talking about the, the kind of cameos and stuff. 
Why is why is Matthew Broderick in this movie? Whenever you said why, I knew exactly what you were going <laughs> to say. Because he's playing Matthew Broderick. He's literally playing Matthew Broderick. Well, okay, then let's talk about the cameos because you mentioned that at the front. Um, in regards to, and I'll, I'll, I promise I'll make this make sense, but in regards to Marvel's tendency to have <laughs> random endings, uh-huh. or have, or excuse me, have endings after the credits, yeah. Christopher Nolan said a real movie wouldn't do that. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And a, I a comedy, feel, a, a comedy would though. I mean, I'm, well, I'm no, fine well, with no. I mean, um, ha, th- this pictures and mm. Judd Apatow in general's pictures just cram it with celebrities just to you know get his buddies on screen. Mm. That seems like something a real movie wouldn't do. That oh, yeah. I mean, it's and I think it it works to varying degrees. Like I don't mind Daniel Radcliffe and uh, uh, oh, what's her face, uh, uh, my Marissa cousin, Tomei. Marissa Tomei in the movie inside the movie. Like it's it's not great, but it works enough for me. Um, there, you know, I I really like Mike Birbiglia as the like brother in law. Um, and and Brie Larson as the sister. Like, um, they and and maybe that's. That's not nearly as much stunt cast. Nobody's going to see the movie because they're like, oh, Mike Birbigli is in it. Well, no one other than this guy. Yeah. Like, I was really excited to see uh, to see them together. Um, but then, like, Matthew Broderick and Marv Albert and I can't – Chris uh, – I'm, I'm, I, I don't Chris know. Chris Paul. Is that her name? I, oh, I thought oh, you meant – No, no, no. Chris Paul's not in this. I know who Chris Paul is. Okay. Uh, no, the sports ball announcer. Um, the, the other one, so – Anyway, the, yeah, yeah. Insert uh, sports ball announcer. Yeah. Um, they're they're all playing themselves for like no I don't know, for no reason it felt like it it was just like, oh hey, look, we're and we're really deep in the movie, so we're just gonna throw more at like when Method Man showed up as the Haitian worker at the assisted living place, like I thought that was going to be the apex of like, look who we just threw in to throw someone in for for no reason to play a, a little character. And I was totally wrong. Well and and again, once again, um a real movie I don't think would do that. Is this – and maybe that's – and this is probably a good entry point into our special features conversation is that this movie was more interested in being funny than it was interested in being a comedy, being a great comedic story. And so if you're just trying to be funny, then have a bunch of random jokes that anyone could tell and have a bunch of celebrity cameos. Yeah. And so a real movie wouldn't do that. We already know your favorite part. We already know my favorite part. I'll throw you for a loop then. Who is your favorite character? <laughs> I, I think I'm going to have to go with John Cena. Like, I, I think that's just real quickly. I'll say I think getting rid of John Cena as early on as they did was a mistake. I would have liked to see more of him in this movie. All right. Um, I would agree most with that with uh, Bill Hader coming in close second. OK, yeah, that's that's fair. Now, a fundamental aspect of this picture is, of course, alcoholism, particularly among the youthful. So I'm kind of hoping your recommendation today will be a series of fireball shots. Is that what you'll be? <laughs> oh. Fireball shots, man. Uh, I mean, that that's that's train wreck worthy, I, I would say. You know, I, I only within the past like month and a half, maybe two months, had my very first fire, fireball shot and not a fan um, because I'm not, you know, a, a freshman girl in college. You know, and honestly, and I think, uh, yeah, the fireball, I think is it's its potency is overrated. It, it, it's not my thing. But um, this this beer that I'm going to recommend for this is also kind of not my thing. I mean, finding the right beer for Trainwreck was a bit of a daunting task. I mean, I, I wanted to pick something that reflected my reaction to the film, which is initial giddy excitement, which quickly deflated into apathy, um, which, you know, I didn't I didn't hate this movie. I laughed a lot, but. It's not one that I mean, honestly, I I have no recommendation for you to see it in the theater. I'll say that. Like, 
catch it, catch it later. I would actually to briefly interject is I would, I wouldn't even recommend saying it at all. I would just watch the YouTube clips, the funniest moments. Cause it's not like they have anything there's, to there's do a with lot the of, There's a lot of funny moments though, but here I'll, I'll, I'll wrap this all up uh, at, at the end of this. Okay. You ready? Uh, so my, my recommendation for train wreck is sneak attack by 21st amendment brewery in San Francisco, California. And let me begin with what I like about this beer. And that's the label. The label of this beer is awesome. Uh, it features a shirtless potbelly George Washington crossing the icy Delaware with a ragtag crew of summer dressed hooligans. So it's, you know, the, the famous Washington crossing the Delaware, but, um, he, he looks like a goon essentially. I, it, it looks awesome. I'll, I'll put a picture up in the, uh, in the show notes. So, see, I almost disagree. I kind of think that you should make the viewer purchase this beer if they really want to see it, well, but we'll, that's, that's we'll, up we'll, to you. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get to this, but you know, unfortunately it kind of felt like the idea of the label came first and the beer came second. Uh, sneak attack is a Saison or a farmhouse style beer, uh, which is typically reserved for the summer months. But those sneaky pranksters at 21st Amendment Brewery decided that they're going to release this beer in the winter, uh, thus the great name and even greater artwork. Uh, however, Sneak Attack isn't a particularly interesting farmhouse ale. It, it has a funky flavor without the like spicy and bitter characteristics that I like in the style. Uh, it's, you know, it's drinkable, it's inoffensive, but it's ultimately underwhelming. Uh, as I said, 21st Amendment only distributes this in the winter months. So here's, here's my recommendation for you. Maybe lay off train wreck until it hits HBO and then buy just a single can of this in a build your own six pack. Um, that's, I think that's the best way to do this. Cause I, I really, this, this is the type of beer that if you bought it in a six pack, I think you would end up taking it to parties and just leaving it in the fridge you know, for, for someone else to like, it, it would just end up traveling and traveling. It's, it's not a bad beer. It's, it's a beer that you can drink, but it's just, it, th- there are too many other great beers out there to spend your time with this one. There are too many other great films out right now to waste your money in the theater. But if it's on, on a Sunday afternoon on HBO, uh, give it a whirl. I mean, it's, it's definitely because of the way it's structured and the jokes, like you could pop in and any, in and out at any time, I feel. Uh, so that is sneak attack by 21st amendment brewery. And to that, I would add is even though I would never recommend fireball shots, if you're the type of person who enjoys train wreck, you're probably also the type of person who enjoys the immaturity that goes with taking a bunch of <laughs> fireball shots. So that's always an option too. I also like it that you said, don't waste your money. I think that should maybe even be our slogan is don't we waste, we waste our money. So you don't have to waste yours. <laughs> That's the new war. Starts is, is that our, our thumbs up, thumbs down, waste your money. Don't yeah, waste exactly, your money. Yeah, exactly. And so I think both of us agree. Don't waste your money on this. Film. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you'll laugh, but it's not, it's not worth the like 10 bucks you're going to pay. You'll laugh, but you're not going to laugh as much as you would watching a YouTube cat video. You know, it, it depends on the scene. I'll say it depends on the scene. Well, if you do feel like wasting your money, despite our pleading, Trainwreck is currently playing in theaters nationwide. So if you've seen it, please tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with a conversation in contemporary cinematic comedy.
Make me pure, Lord, but not yet, said St. Augustine of Hippo, a statement some 16 centuries old, yet remarkably modern, a saintly self-commentary that succinctly describes the contemporary comedy protagonist. You know the setup. Bob is a pretty okay guy. His career's going so-so. He's socially well-adjusted, sort of. Heck, he may even have himself a gal pal. Still, old Bob has some sort of a character flaw. He drinks too much, sleeps around too much, or too little. He lives in mom's basement, or he even shares a bed with a teddy bear. Bob is a man-child, and during the next three-fourths of the film, we're encouraged to laugh at his stupidity, until at the end, Bob has an epiphany and finally becomes, dun-dun-dun, an adult. Sometimes Bob's actually Roberta, but you get the idea. It seems pretty clear why this setup has been so resounding for the past two decades. Bob is us, or at least a hyper-exaggerated version of us, the immature adult who wants to be taken seriously as a grown-up, but doesn't want to stop collecting Batman toys and getting tanked on the weekend. Only we don't look at Bob with humility. Oh my god, am I like that guy? No, instead we look at Bob with superiority. Wow, thank god I'm not that guy. So what does this setup say about modern comedy? More importantly, what does this say about us? Chris, I have laid down the gauntlet for today's conversation in contemporary comedy. Am I just a moralizing, cantankerous old fart? Or am I, perhaps, onto something? Oh boy. Uh, you know, Hunter, I don't think those are mutually exclusive as far as like, I, I don't think it's one or the other. I, I, I think they're both. No, yeah, we'll, you're we'll absolutely, you're absolutely correct. But with that said, even though I was intentionally very general in my description, would, I would say that the, what I called earlier, the train wreck comedy, the shit show comedy, I would say that's the dominant species of film comedy right now. Would you concur? I think it's a brand of comedy and, and definitely the populist brand go back to, you know, what we were talking yes. about in the opening. Um, it's, it's the one that's, you know, making a lot of bank and has been for the past at least 10 years, if not more. I mean, since I, I guess really since, uh, Apatow came onto the scene. I, and you know, it, to me, it feels like there's kind of a, there's always a golden child of the current, uh, the, the, the current mainstream comedy before him, it was, and maybe even a little bit concurrently, but starting a little before him, you had like the Adam McKay, Will Ferrell, uh, combination. And then before that, and, and once again, overlapping, you had the like Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, Vince Vaughn, um, you know, those, ben those, Stiller. Ben Stiller, those guys. And, um, so I, I feel like, well, well, and, and not to, not to go back all the way to the comedy, you know, alpha per se, but, and then also Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler, though, yeah. they were very big, uh, yeah. particularly in the and, mid to late nineties. And, you know, they're all, they all have their own brand, but they all kind of share something as well. I think, you know, what you, you have kind of set up and described, that's very much Apatow to a, to a T and he's, you know, sustained, surprisingly sustained a, a long go at it without, you know, falling from grace. I, I think, you know, given the, uh, critical reception and the, the box office reception of Trainwreck, uh, it's, Probably, you know, he's probably here to stay for a little while longer, at least. Either that or it's a last gasp, but I kind of feel it's more the former, that that his style is very popular. And, you know, it does definitely bleed over into other stuff. I mean, like, Bridesmaids definitely has that same sort of I would say Bridesmaids in this Um, are almost identical. I I don't think Bridesmaids is a little, or is quite as sharp-edged in the, like, oh, hey, now we got to get super serious. You know, like, it's, I was saying in the review that he, he uh, wears his three X structure on his sleeve. I think bridesmaids 
hides it a little bit more. It's also, uh, while it still has a lot of that improv and everything, it's a lot tighter. Like it doesn't, it doesn't say, okay, well, we're just going to let jokes breathe and, and go on a little too long or, um, or whatever it fig, in my opinion, tends to at least tourniquet and, and get it as, as tight as he can with that, that loose improv nature. Yeah. I would say, <clears throat> I would certainly agree that Bridesmaids is the better movie. However, it did commit the cardinal sin of all of popular culture. And that is a main character who wants to own a cupcake factory. <laughs> If if you if your if your storyline is taken from a Visa commercial, then it's it's clearly cliche. It's uh it, it worked for me. Like I I like I kind of made a little list of of you know categories of where I feel with uh, comedies of the past ten years or so, and I I put bridesmaids in the okay you know sort of the middle. I I like it. I don't I don't love it like so many people do, but uh, I I do enjoy it. Well, I'll I'll throw out some theorizing here uh, if you'll bear with me. As you pointed out, um, these type of comedies, the train wreck comedies are making money. Mm -hmm. The reason I think they're being made, besides the fact they make money, is it's it's repeatable and it's easy and it works for trailers. Because Mm -hmm. comedies, believe it or not, even if they make a lot of money here, they're not really transferable to other cultures. They're not like a Furious 7 or a Jurassic World. Yeah. And so you need to make all your money in the United States. And so in order to make that money, you have to have a trailer where the jokes are easily digestible. And so even though my favorite type of comedy, the jokes are within context, you're not necessarily going to get that joke in a trailer. Whereas a Judd Apatow joke where any character can make it, you know, say it, you can put that in the trailer and you don't need context. Yeah, and we we talked about this a little bit earlier. I mean, it's it's that like you – whether it's a a broad joke that's just – like the the punchline is – the very simple like uh, dick jokes or whatever, you know, that are just you don't need you don't need any setup to it or, or something that's a little more complex, like maybe a, a Wes Anderson. You know, he has very weird, complex, subtle jokes that I mean, sometimes I won't even get on the first viewing of, you know, just he, he sets up these little bitty jokes throughout that are like, I mean, I, I would say, honestly, I, I feel that a, a Wes Anderson movie for me has probably the same like jokes per capita of something like a Judd Apatow, Judd Apatow at his best, even who, I mean, he really packs them in, but they're, they're on very totally different spectrums. Well, and I would agree to that. And, but then at the same time, Wes Anderson, even though he's the better filmmaker and more critically acclaimed, uh, not as big of a draw. And then also his, his style doesn't lend itself to trailers really. And of course that's, that's the key factor Dude, here with comedies is that, trailers. That Grand Budapest trailer was pretty awesome. Not, not well, a great, to you and me. not necessarily a, a, a seminal comedy trailer. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I'm well, I'm referencing a trailer that I guess now would be 11 years old, 12 or 11 years old, but it's kind of like in meet the Fockers, wherever you had Barbara Streisand writing Robert De Niro by giving him a back massage. Uh-huh. And then the very next scene is Ben Stiller saying, you wrote him like Seabiscuit. Yeah. You know, all you need is just visual context and popular culture context. And mm-hmm. to me, that is the quintessential modern American comedy joke setup. Yeah, I, I guess so. The, the modern American mainstream comedy. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's comparing some sort of bodily function or awkward activity to something in the popular culture, which not to be crude. So you might want to skip 30 seconds folks, but not to be crude, but it's like the, the joke in train work where she compared her uh, period to the, the red wedding in game of Thrones. I mean, any character could have made that the context of that scene, it could have been placed anywhere in the movie. 
it, it was just a hundred percent, just a joke. It, yeah. it didn't really have anything to do with anything. The, I mean, the only thing that made it work specifically for her is she is, you know, she does have that, that foul mouthed humor. So yeah. And, you can, and don't you can get, give it to her, but yeah, it's, don't it's that wrong. sort of binary. Can this character say it or can't it? Can't they like not, not why you, know, what's the motivation behind it? I well, guess. and yeah, and exactly the motivation behind it. And, uh, and to that point, it's just any character can make that. And it's just, it, 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 it reminds me of that formula. Mm-hmm. I see. I I think you're. I I do think you're a little doom and gloom, though. On on the whole, me? Um, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> me being doom and gloom about on, something on, on American comedy because I think. And granted, I mean, it totally. Like we, I already brought up Wes Anderson. Like I I have several examples that I I tried to come up with as like counterattacks on yours. The and and your defense could easily be for all of these. Well, they don't make as much money. Um, and, and that's, that's totally the case, but I think, I think there is a lot of like interesting stuff, you know, being made that's, that's not being seen as much, uh, like, like Noah Bombeck's films. Um, uh, Noah Bombeck has been sort of, he's, he's been about sort of a roller coaster of, I, I think his back in like the mid nineties started out really strong with kicking and screaming and, then, you know, was sort of teetered off a little bit and then fell way off for me with Margaret with the wedding, which he, he still claims is a comedy, but it's a really dark, sad sort of movie. But then, uh, with Greenberg, Francis Ha and the recent while we're young, he, he's making a specific type of comedy that doesn't fall into those trappings of, uh, you know, just any character could say these lines. Like, I mean, the, the Ben Stiller character in either Greenberg or while we're young, he has a lot of sort of angsty, ragey moments that only that character could pull off because of the context of, uh, of, you know, who he, who that character is, is sort of an asshole. Well, and, and, and I would, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I do think there's a lot of marvelous comedy being done, both at the cinematic level and certainly at the television level. I think that Louis yeah. C.K. T- and Larry TV's, Dave- Yeah, TV's a whole nother, and, and honestly, like, TV may be a better format for that, you know. Well, you don't need the trailer and the, 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 the need to make a ton of money isn't as much there. Well, you also get that context that you're talking about as far as like, if you have a character that you're revisiting over and over again and you, you really get to know them, then you can really go to some more interesting places with, uh, you know, fine crafted jokes for specifically for that character, for that character's personality, those sorts of things. Well, and to, and so we both agree that great American comedy does still exist. It's just on a lower scale. So maybe a more interesting question would be why is the stuff that you and I think is so repetitive? Why is it so popular? Where did this come from? What is it? What accounts for it? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know where you trace it back to if you want to. I mean, because we could go back to, like you said, Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler, which was, you know, of their time. They're they're also very broad, um, not not quite as crude by by any means. Like they I, were well, still, you know, they were PG-13 movies that they OK, were yeah. yeah. Whereas like these everything Apatow has done has been hard R. Um, McKay, I feel like he he's definitely at, at least worked his way into that super hard R sort of uh, um, as stuff as, as he's gone on. So do you think that it is just because the comedy is so broad or do you think that we potentially relate to these characters or see ourselves in them in some way that accounts for the popularity? Uh, I honestly, I think it's, it's how broad it is. I mean, that it, it seems to be, it, it's something that's obviously working and you know how Hollywood is. If something's working, why, why would you fix it? And it's, 
you know, because it is so broad, it's going to have a, a mass appeal. People are going to turn out and see it and, and generally, you know, enjoy it and have a ha ha laugh fest and, you know, whatever. I mean, thinking, I, I was thinking about this, uh, when, when you proposed this topic, which, um, I, I think is, we, you know, we could, we could spend hours talking about this, I think, but, um, like the, the Ben Stiller comedies from back when we were in like high school. Uh, things like, like I can remember going to see dodgeball and just laughing and laughing and laughing in the theater. And, and I loved it. And then seeing it again later, you know, on TBS or whatever, and realizing like, oh, it's, it's funny. It's cute, but it's not like it wasn't the movie that I remembered being just hilarious. Like there's, and so there's that, like that instantaneous gratification of laughing at a joke, laughing at a joke with an audience as well. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's yeah, something certainly uh, a, a comedy that is broad. It can, you can almost have a better reaction to it, seeing it, you know, with that group of people, because it feels great to well, be, you know, having that experience laughing with, with all those folks. Well, and you know what? I really, really like that answer because just like an explosion looks better in 3d on IMAX, a very broad comedic thing looks better at a theater. And so I think you, I think that might be a a solid explanation for it. I'm going to throw out another theory, which doesn't contradict yours, but is, is kind of in a different area. I would say, believe it or not, the two most consequential comedians, and not the, mo- the not the funniest, but the most consequential uh, over the past 20 years or so have been Kevin Smith and Seth MacFarlane. The reason is, is because they have introduced the idea that comedy doesn't have to be contextual. You can just throw a joke out there, even if it has nothing to do with the characters, and that would qualify as comedy. Especially Seth MacFarlane. I, I think you've got to, like, I mean... Because his non sequiturs, like it, it started as a cute, bizarre little thing, and then quickly became a crutch. Of yeah, it's just, becoming almost infuriating to me. Just remember the time X Y Z, or remember this esoteric show, or candy bar commercial, or whatever. Well, and and his are very again broad. His his div, uh, divergence. They're or, they're broad, but they're also oddly specific. Like I, there. I mean, there's. Now I'm not going to be be able to remember the name of the guy. There's one in it's in one of the first few seasons of Family Guy where uh, I think Peter says something like that's that's something 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 like this guy, and then it cuts to like a colonial looking guy who just looks up and goes, "You don't even know who I am," and that's the entire like and legitimately like I did not know who the guy was. I had to look him up on Wikipedia. Now I can't recall. But, well, yeah, it's just know. so self-referential because at that point Family Guy was making fun of itself. So even even though there aren't a whole lot of movies doing quite to the degree that Seth MacFarlane does in Family Guy, that mentality of having a joke that's unrelated mm-hmm. to the story itself is yeah. very prevalent. Yeah. And then Kevin Smith is more the idea of let's have people talk about pop culture and compare pop culture to bodily functions. Which I'm I'm generally more okay with. Like uh Kevin Smith is a guy that I like his movies probably more than I like him as a as a person. I mean, like I I really I love I love me some uh Clerks 2 or uh you know of, of the recent mm-hmm. stuff or Jane Silent Bob Strike Back. I mean, Jane Silent Bob Strike Back is a very broad sort of comedy. I mean, you have Mark Hamill playing a character named Dick Buncher. Um and 
you know, just your, your typical Kevin Smith tropes, but, uh, it, it works for me. Um, and I mean, the, like in, in Clerks 2, we just, uh, maybe when Joey was on, he, he, we were talking about Lord of the Rings and he was basically just ended up quoting Clerks 2 about it's just people walking for hours on end. Like, I, I love, I love those moments in, in, in that film. Like he, he has a great style for, making the pop culture jokes. I think they work. They work well. They, or at least they, they tickle my funny bone. Okay. Well then, uh, part, uh, 15 of this conversation. Do you think that for a, a cinematic comedy to be great, the jokes have to be within context, or do you think that something can be funny? And even if it's not a great movie, if it's really funny, then it qualifies as a great comedy. Um, I don't know. For me, I, I feel like rewatchability really for, for me factors into, comedy as a sustainable like the great you know thing like if if i see a movie like i mean what i was saying about dodgeball is a perfect example like that movie i would say went from being like i really enjoyed it to like yeah it's fine i mean performances are good i it's not a terrible movie but um it's it's not a seminal comedy for me whereas something like anchorman i cannot like if anchorman is on the television I guarantee you I will watch it. Okay, well, is and is Anchorman, do you, would you say that that's a great comedy, or is it just extremely funny to you and always will be? I, I think I think it's both. There, there are certain people who I personally know who cannot watch Will Ferrell movies because they cannot stand Will Ferrell in the – are you one of the – Yeah, you're, 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 yeah, right you're looking at one of them. <laughs> I just, uh, so, so – and that's – so it doesn't work. Anchorman doesn't work for you at all. Yeah, I I, I can't even think about it. <laughs> okay, um, it's just the the timing, the the comedic timing of it. The I mean, and that's one where it's mostly purely driven by jokes for the most part. But and and it has a lot of these things that we've been talking about. The you know jokes that are just throwing out improv lines and and seeing what works. I mean, they they famously made a second movie out of all the outtakes. Um, when they were shooting it, that they released on DVD when, when Anchorman came out. So it, it, it falls into those trappings, but it just, it works so well for me. It, it really like, uh, I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's his cadence. It's his delivery. And for, to just, uh, try to defend Will Ferrell a little bit for you. Have you seen, have you seen Stranger Than Fiction? Actually, I have not. And I think I could probably sit through I, that. I think, it, yeah. I think you should like, because it's not Will Ferrell playing a Will Ferrell character. I mean, it's, it's a good, more subtly funny movie. Um, really, really well crafted. I mean, it's, it's not your, your big ha 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 jokes, but it's, it's a good movie in and of itself. And so it's a, I would say it's more a, a good movie first, a comedy second, but, uh, the, the jokes are good. The comedy's good. And, and Will Ferrell isn't playing that absurd character that he always plays. Well, and, and I'm not really anti-absurd. I think, to your point about Dodgeball, let's use Dodgeball as our guinea pig here. Um, I imagine, having seen it, I saw it on TBS, so maybe, you know, just the context was different. But that kind of picture has something that if a guy gets hit in the face with a wrench, the very first time you see it, that it can't help but be funny. Mm-hmm. But the second time, think, it's not going to be funny because you're thing expecting that, it. I think the thing that works about, like, that particular joke, though, isn't the guy getting hit in the face with the wrench. It's Rip Torn and his delivery of... Uh, I can't remember what the line is now, but if you can dodge it, a wrench, you can dodge. Yeah, yeah. like it, 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 he brings as much to the joke working as the actual physical comedy. 
Um, but it, it is, no, I, it has I, an expiration. Yeah. I totally agree. You, you know it. And so it's not quite, whereas with my, my defense of Anchorman would be like the delivery works every single time for me, every single time. I think a lot of the comedies now that I'm reflecting on it, that I appreciate aren't really the ones that, and I'm not the type to just bust a gut laughing at something anyway, but the comedies that I appreciate don't really lend themselves to that. And I know, we, you know, the keyword here is contemporary and we're getting ready to go back mm-hmm. 30 years, but like raising Arizona. There is not one moment in Raising Arizona, I, I, I would say, that you just fall out of your chair laughing, but yet you're smirking the entire time just at the absurdity of it. Ray, Raising Arizona is a great uh, a great example of exactly what I like about comedy. Um, we might hear a little bit more about it later. I'll say that. But um, it's, it's the type of movie – like for me, the best type of comedy is one where I can think of a line or a moment in the movie just like driving to work and start laughing. Um, raising Arizona, I do that with a lot. Uh, Wes Anderson's films, I do that with a lot. There's, there's a moment in Rushmore where, where Bill Murray picks up his two twin sons. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret? I don't know. I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Shotgun. Hey, Ronnie. Hey, Danny. Hey, guys. In the back, I said shotgun. Get in the back, Donnie. Let's go. Did you invite that kid to your party? Max Fisher. Come on, Dad. There's going to be girls there. I'd rather die. Pull your head out of your ass. Did I miss your little jeans? I'll see you tomorrow. Right out, right after, uh, his, his kid assaults him, verbally assaults him. There's this beat where Bill Murray's still driving this car. And then all of a sudden he just turns around and just starts slapping the crap out of his kid. And that's like, I, I, I don't know. I just love like that can pop into my head in the middle of the day and I'll just be laughing at my desk. Well, so then I guess what you and I can both agree on is context is the difference between great comedy and funny. Because something can be funny but not be great comedy. And then also repeatability. Yeah. Something is always going to be fun. Yeah, sustainability is a, a better way to put it. This We briefly touched on this in Tune Talk, but I recently watched that Every Frame a painting clip you sent me about Chuck Jones. Oh, yeah. I would qualify the I, Looney Tune stuff as brilliant comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to this in the uh, in the show notes. It, it came out just after uh, – after we had recorded, the uh, yeah. Talks, after we so had done tune talks, to, uh, you you should definitely check. It, it's a great like, it, it's a great little piece on Chuck Jones. But the um the author's thesis statement, or the filmmaker's thesis statement, is essentially that Chuck Jones's brilliance within the Looney Tunes context is playing with the um expectation and consequence. Mm-hmm. To put it to put it simply enough, while a Cody cuts a rope to drop a boulder, the boulder doesn't drop until he steps underneath it. Mm-hmm. And but just for whatever reason, oh. even though that's even though that appeals to children, and it, it, that's the point, it, it still is just so smart. It is well, and he also talks about defining characters and and really making building rules for them. Be you know, and and generally, it's pretty simple rules for for all these characters for Wiley Coyote or for for Bugs Bunny, but using that as the way to know exactly how that comedy needs to play out. And I love that you just said that because Bugs Bunny is a distinct character from Daffy Duck and Daffy Duck's a distinct character from Donald Duck, which, you know, the completely different thing. But most comedy today, they're all the same character. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my big issue. 
um, not to just completely throw this guy under the bus, but Kevin Smith once said, I'm a mediocre director, but I'm a great effing writer. And which is why I, you know, have some problems with Kevin Smith. Well, and I don't, I don't really agree with that. And, And you can, and that mentality of just having two dudes talking, it just seems so lazy to me. Having two interchangeable people who they don't have distinct personalities and what they do has no consequence on the comedy. Like I said, it's just a very tired and lazy form of trying to create something funny to me. Yeah, I, but it's easy. No, exactly. And it's easy and it's repeatable and it makes money. It's easy to make too. You know, that's something we haven't really talked about, but it's fairly – even something like 40-Year-Old Virgin, which in and of itself is a high concept of a guy who's 40 years old and has never had sex. But, I mean, you you don't need a whole lot to tell that story. No. You, know, it, you, you need you need a work location. You need a home location. You need a girlfriend's house. Yeah, and so and so it's it's easy to understand why these movies are being made. Is they make money and they don't cost a lot of money. I guess my curiosity just still remains: why are people so enamored with them? Why do they still go see it? Maybe I mean the honestly the best answer I, I could possibly make is that you know the experience in the theater is a uh, is one that is maybe greater uh, there than it is you know actually as an objective. Uh, piece of comedy alone. Well, yeah, in a vacuum. Ex- exactly. And people like comedies. People like seeing comedies in theaters, and they just aren't really being made, particularly mm-hmm. high concept comedies. And I guess that's why uh, television will remain the cradle of contemporary comedy, at least the more interesting types. Yeah, and, I mean, the case could also be made that that's happening with drama more and more as well, as far as from a from a the larger. Uh, budget standpoint and that sort of thing. I mean, the, the places where I I'm really derail, I'm, I'm derailing this and turning it into a train wreck right now, this discussion, <laughs> but, um, the, uh, I, I find that just in general, the places where I find cinema, the most interesting right now are the smaller, you know, things in, in comedy and drama in whatever, even in, you know, like sci-fi or that sort of, you know, it's, it feels like we have a bit of this, uh, a little bit of a seventies cinema feel, going on right now with, you know, the, the Duplasses and Lena Dunham and, um, these people who have come out of Mumblecore or the, these little pockets that, uh, they're doing things cheaply and that's how they're able to make their, you know, they're able, able to make their films. And honestly, those are the things that I, I would, you know, I, I prefer to point to as, you know, I, my, my past two Friday featured flicks have been movies starring Mark Duplass, very small little, little films, one setting essentially. And they're both pretty weird little comedies, but they're doing things that are still fresh and interesting and, and that sort of thing. So like, that's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's where I'm going to hang my hat on, like what's working in comedy in, in films these days. So then the other key takeaway is that you are a glass half full kind of guy when it comes to comedy. I'm glass half empty. You want to look where good comedy is happening. I want to just be a cantankerous old fart yelling at kids on yeah, my front but, porch. Yeah, but at the same time, you're a you're a wallet half full kind of guy when it comes to uh you know making money. And mine's a, probably a more wallet half empty kind of guy. Or at least at least the the movies that I like that are making money, they're not making nearly as much money as the ones that you hate that are also making money. Well, uh, I think Chris and I agree. We just come at it from different perspectives. However, you, the listener, very well may completely disagree with us, in which case we'd love to hear from you. So tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next...
time uh you've been pretty as i said before doom and gloom about about comedy so i'm interested if you're going to try to give us a recommendation that's within comedy or or you're just going to completely avoid it because you are the the you know the crusty old man cantankerous old fart yeah um actually mine is a comedy and i mentioned it a moment ago it is from 1987 the coen brothers raising arizona you bastard what (laughs) that's uh, Raising Arizona is actually it is my recommendation as well. Well, it can't be because it's mine. Go, go on. Well, go on. I, um, what I as I said a second ago in in uh, special features, what I like about this movie is there is no really guffaw moment. In fact, the first time I saw it, I think I was twelve. I was a kid. It's it's not a you know it's a movie that it's it, it's kind of like watching a Mike Judge show like like watching king of the hill i didn't like king of the hill as a child mm-hmm. it's only as an adult that i like understand the subtle nuance of of it even though like there are some things that are maybe played broad but there's the 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 great working pieces are really down and and small and minuscule things and and yeah and absolutely and so like i said first time i saw it i mean i liked it uh-huh. you know it's entertaining but i didn't i didn't see well why is this so funny but uh, on successive viewings, you just you can't help but smirk throughout it, just yeah. because it's it's just got such a, a, a an uncanny anarchic quality to it that it's recognizable as a real world, but just something is off. Yeah, and that's I mean I I think uh, Coen Brothers comedies are that way a lot, where one like repeat viewing they get better and better. Um, you know, Big Lebowski is one that I was, was like that with where like the first time I saw it, like I knew people loved it and I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. And then it's when you see it again and again and you, you, you see the little, little bitty pieces where, where it really, really shines. I mean, for me with Raising Arizona, it's, there's so many small things like, uh, so you've got these really, this really wide establishing shot in the living room of Nate or of, uh, Nathan, Arizona. And there's, I can't remember the exact line, but, um, he says, do you, do you have any idea what time it is? And they have like the place and then the time pops up as, you know, they, they have these like little, uh, graphics playing with what's being said on screen. Just a, a nice, subtle little, uh, little joke. Um, it's and, creative and then, as compared it, to so yeah, much other yeah. comedy. It's, it's, it's that, which isn't creative. This very much is. And then, and then so many, so many great lines, so many great deliveries of lines. You know, son, you got a panty on your head. And Sir, we have an indication you were born Nathan Huff Hines. Is this correct? Yeah. I changed my name. What of it? But can you give us an indication why? Yeah. Did you buy furniture at a store called Unpainted Huff Hines? All right, I'll get to the point. Was the child Are these wearing re- anything when he was abducted? Nobody sleeps naked in this house. I am asking the wear- questions, officer. If we're going to put an APB out, I need a description. Yes, of we're better trained to intervene in a crisis situation. 
What was he wearing? A dinner jacket. What do you think? He's wearing his damn jammies. Child was wearing his jammies. You happy? Do you have any disgruntled employees? Hell, they're all disgruntled. I ain't running a damn daisy farm. What did the My motto say? is do it my way or watch your butt. So what you think it might have been an employee? Oh, don't make me laugh. Without my say-so, they wouldn't piss with their pants on fire. What did the pajamas Officer. look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. I just, I absolutely love this movie and it's absurd. Like the whole, the, the, the biker from hell, that whole character comes out of nowhere, but somehow works with him. Who goes out of his way to shotgun a little gecko. Um, so anyway, that's my recommendation, Raising Arizona. Chris, what is your recommendation? My, my recommendation is also Raising Arizona for, (laughs) Uh, for the aforementioned, uh, I think uh, I, do those do those break the sacrosanct rules of war starts at midnight? Are we able to do that? We haven't exploded yet. Yeah, we we'll see. We'll see if there's a there might be a trial coming up. Uh well <laughs> the arm the armed guards are going to show up at the door any minute now and escort us out. In that case, we better both get out of here. So that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Midweek Memo. It's filled with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume that you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now and leave a review in iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners, and it'll make you feel awesome. Yes, we really cannot stress that enough. If you like the show, the best simplest thing you can do to help us out is to rate us on iTunes, so please do that. Though if you are the trolling type who just is hate-listening through this entire show and these credits, you can tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Music on this week's show comes from the brand new album, Make It All the Time, by Sports. Find out more at sportsbandok.com. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to tune in next time when we'll be discussing Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Thanks for listening. That's all, folks. Also, are you getting an echo at all? An echo? An echo. Okay, never mind. You're always always sensitive to the echo. (laughs) I'm a dolphin. I'm part dolphin.